Good evening and a very warm welcome to our evening service. We'll start this evening with some words from Psalm 95. Oh, come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We'll sing a, a modern version of that psalm, which is number seven in the hymn books, if you're using the hymn books. Come, let us praise the Lord with joy our God acclaim. His greatness tell abroad and bless his saving name. Hymn number seven in the hymn books. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is our happy duty and our glorious privilege to come and to worship you this evening, to shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, to humble ourselves before you and acknowledge that you are our creator, you are our maker. We did not form and fashion ourselves. We are not where we are because of any goodness or any power of our own. Rather, we come and we confess that we are the sheep of your pasture. 
Lord, we recognise you as the uh, creator, the upholder of the universe. What we sometimes call the, the forces of nature are no uh, impersonal forces, but rather the operations of your hand. The heights of the hills are yours, the sea is yours, because you made it, and your hands formed the dry land. And we remember that you created this world to be inhabited, and you uh, filled it with everything necessary, not just for a, a mere existence, but for a, a bountiful, uh, for abundant life. And Lord, we, we look around us and we marvel at your creation and at your creative power that you have uh, displayed in this world. Lord, we recognise that this world uh, is a world that is not as you originally created it. It is a world under the curse. And we've been reminded of that in this past week with this a terrible earthquake uh, in, in Turkey and with the, uh, the, the millions that are, are suffering there, with uh, the thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, we don't know, who have lost their lives, and, and the millions of those who, are, uh, who have lost their, their livelihoods and uh, perhaps all their possessions, the many who are grieving, uh, and Lord, amongst them all are your people. And we do bring them before you, Lord. We thank you that uh, even now there are people being uh, pulled from the rubble. And we pray that you will be with the rescuers. That if it be your will, there might be others who, who are yet saved. But we pray for those who are mourning and for, are grieving. And we ask, Lord, that uh, you might at this time turn many hearts to yourself. That anguish cries might be lifted up to you, the creator. And that you might respond in great mercy. We know that that land of Turkey, Lord, is a land which was blessed with the gospel from the earliest days of the church. The disciples first uh, called Christians at that uh, town, then known as Antioch in Turkey. And Lord, we know that you still have many hundreds, many perhaps thousands of your own people are still there. And we ask that you will be near to them and that you will comfort them. But Lord, Turkey isn't the only place crying out, the only place afflicted. Oh, there are so many places in this world, uh, so much anguish, so much darkness. And Lord, we pray for the light of your gospel to go out. We thank you that uh, so many of your people have, uh, have heeded your call and to gone uh, into every land and nation with the gospel. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to accompany them uh, in power, that the preaching of the gospel might be effective and many might believe and that all your chosen ones might in your good time be uh, gathered in for salvation. Lord, we pray for ourselves here and we pray for those amongst our own number who are afflicted. Uh, some families, Lord, with those who are greatly suffering. Uh, some of uh, members of this church, Lord, and you know the burdens that they bear. And we ask that you will be near to them and that you will be with them and that they might know in a special way that they are indeed uh, your sheep and that you are the good shepherd and that you care for them and that you will uh, make them to lie down in green pastures, that you will give them uh, the satisfying living waters to drink. We thank you that tonight we can remember especially as we come to the table, our good shepherd, the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. And we pray that you will bless us and, and minister to us. Lord, 
you have called us and you have saved us and you have put us here in this place at this time that we might be at the light of the world, that we might lift up the gospel that you have given to us and that you might cause the light of Christ to shine through us uh, in this district. And so we pray, Lord, that you will help us. You know the, the obstacles that we find in ourselves. So often there's, there's unbelief. Uh, so often there's uh, a fear or anxiety of, of what people will uh, think or say if we speak to them of Jesus. Uh, perhaps, Lord, we uh, are sometimes ignorant where we ought to be filled with the knowledge of the scriptures. Lord, you know what it is uh, that keeps us back. And we pray that, that we might today hear your voice and that we might not harden our hearts, but that we rather might respond in faith. And we pray that you will use us and that you will bless this church and the work that we seek to do, whether it's the open air or the coffee morning or the babies and toddlers or the Kids Connect or the Rooted Group or whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you will be pleased to own this, uh, this work that you'll be pleased to speak through us and that save many from this district. Lord, we have so much to be grateful for, so much to thank you for. And we pray that, that you will receive our praise and that you will come and bless us tonight through your word as we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his glory. Amen. Once again, a very warm welcome and so a few notices. Uh, this evening, uh, reminder: we've got a coffee morning this week, um, Tuesday at ten thirty, and in and Tuesday evening, seven forty-five, will be a meeting in various homes um, for our small groups, and we'll be starting this uh, new series uh, of Bible studies under the theme of Christian Essentials. So Jeremy sent out uh, the questions for that by email earlier in the week. If anybody uh, missed that, do make sure that you speak to us so that you can be uh, prepared for uh, the Bible study on Tuesday evening. Um, Litterpick, uh, the team uh, going out this Wednesday at 10.30. There will be no babies and toddlers uh, this Wednesday or the following Wednesday, having a, a two-week break. Uh, but there will be Kids Connect Wednesday at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, the next Sunday, we look forward to our, our morning service at 10.30, the evening service, uh, which will include communion at 6 p.m. Um, but no afternoon groups for children and young people uh, next, Sunday evening, uh, next Sunday afternoon uh, or the Sunday following. Uh, and one more reminder of the uh, Next Generation Conference. Uh, this is a conference for all those involved in uh, children and youth work, uh, which is taking place in uh, Nottingham, um, Saturday the 4th of March. Um, this is the, the last call for anybody who wants to take part in that, to make themselves known to Lorraine so that she can uh, book up uh, places for that conference. So if you're interested, please do let Lorraine know by the end of today, please. All of these things in the will of the Lord. And now before we come to the communion table, uh, we'll take our second hymn, uh, which is 248, if you're using the books, hymn 248. Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. 248. <laughs>
as we come to the Lord's table, I remind you that uh, eating the bread and drinking the cup is a privilege reserved for God's children, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith for salvation, who have been baptized and are walking in fellowship with a gospel church. So if that's your situation, we do warmly encourage you to take part tonight. But if that's not your situation, don't be at all embarrassed to let the cup and the bread pass by. We're very glad to have everyone here with us this evening. Some words from John's Gospel. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was a preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones should be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. I'm going to invite our brother Richard Brooks to come and to give thanks to the, for the bread, and then later Alan Wells give thanks for the cup. Our ever gracious God, we come before you once again in your prevailing name of your beloved Son and our beloved Saviour the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come, we are all too conscious of our own utter unworthiness. But we thank you that we can come in and through the one who is altogether worthy, our pure and holy, gracious and compassionate Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we're reminded tonight, our dear Lord Jesus, that through gospel grace you have brought us to your banqueting house and put your banner of love over us. We thank you for the table of the Lord. We do love it, O Lord, and we delight to be partakers at it. We love the way, O oh Lord Jesus, that you thereby point us back to Calvary, where you bore all our sins in your own body upon the tree. 
and we love you in the way too that you point us on to your glorious return for we do this here on earth only until you come and we plead with all our longing hearts tonight please come Lord Jesus and hasten your glorious appearing when a banqueting table Lord speaks of eating and drinking we shall drink in a few moments but now we come to eat we thank you dear Lord Jesus that you are the bread of heaven who comes with life to our souls and plead as we ask for the fresh pardon of all our sins may we feed upon you in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving we come as ever in Jesus' name. Amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord God, we uh, come before your all-seeing eye, uh, the one who knows the secrets of every heart. And Lord, we wouldn't pretend to be anything other than what we are before you. We are needy sinners. And Lord, we know that we have nothing of ourselves to bring that would uh, deal with our sins and make us acceptable in your sight. But Lord, we thank you for uh, what this cup represents, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, poured out and shed for us we thank you that all the scriptures were perfectly fulfilled in his death upon the cross 
that he kept your law, that he did everything that was necessary in bearing our sins uh, so that we might be saved. We thank you that the Lord Jesus could truly say it is finished uh, when he laid down his life. We thank you, Lord, that all was accomplished according to your holy will and you are satisfied with what he has done. You have raised him from the dead and given him glory and you receive and bless all who come to you through him. We thank you for the fullness of salvation that is uh, available to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have been washed by his blood. Our sins have been atoned for. We are accepted in your sight and uh, have the adoption of children. Lord, we thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ, that whatever happens to us in this life, we have that eternity with you, seeing Christ face to face, worshipping you without sin. Prepare us, Lord, for that day and help us, as long as we are here on earth, to be faithful to the Saviour who has bought us with his own blood. Lord, keep us from sin, lead us in your ways and help us to rejoice in hope. Bless us as we take this cup. Be with us and teach us, we pray, that we might taste afresh of your salvation as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes.
now have a scripture reading, and this evening we're turning to Nehemiah and chapter 5. That's the book of Nehemiah and the fifth chapter. We'll begin reading at verse 1. And there was a great outcry of their people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there are those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It's not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said... We will restore it, and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath of them, that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garments and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. 
Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Amen. We pray that God will bless his word as Jeremy opens it to us in a few moments. Before he does so, we'll sing our third hymn, which you might find on the sheets if you're using those. There is a higher throne than all this world has known, where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. Our third hymn. On Sunday evenings, we're thinking together about Nehemiah, the man of the book, and uh, the message in a series of sermons we've called A Project a Build. We're thinking uh, back uh, to the 5th century BC, 
and uh, to the rebuilding of the walls of uh, Jerusalem and uh, making application of what was going on uh, back uh, then uh, to our own 21st century AD and uh, the building of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in which uh, we are involved. And we come uh, this evening to the chapter that we've already uh, read together, uh, Nehemiah uh, chapter 5 which perhaps is one of the less dramatic chapters in the book, but which is nonetheless critical. Our theme from Nehemiah 5 tonight is handling difficulties well. Handling difficulties well. Where are we in the Nehemiah narrative? Well, the rebuilding continues But there are issues. We saw that last time in Nehemiah chapter 4. There were both external issues and uh, internal issues. Externally, God's people had uh, their enemies. There were those who were against God and against his people. Characters like Tobiah and Sanballat and uh, all the rest of them. Uh, And they were determined uh, to uh, discourage uh, God's people in this great rebuilding project. More than that, they were determined to see it uh, come uh, to an end. But not only were there issues externally, uh, there were also issues internally. The people were becoming uh, weary and uh, uh, discouraged. For example, chapter 10 of verse 4, then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. Uh, The work has been going on for some time. There's been significant progress, but there's still a lot more remaining to be done and the people are feeling uh, weary and uh, they are becoming uh, discouraged. Well, this week we're coming on from Nehemiah 4 to Nehemiah 5, where is highlighted for us a particular internal problem. Namely, among the Jewish people there in and around Jerusalem, some were abusing others financially. Those who had more were taking advantage of those who had less. And Nehemiah has to uh, sort this out. That's what we find him doing in this uh, fifth chapter. Uh, And the point, I believe, is that how Nehemiah handled uh, this uh, difficulty was uh, critical. If he handled it well, then the rebuilding would continue and under God's good hand, uh, the job would be completed. But had he not handled it as well as he did, then it had the potential at least uh, to derail the whole uh, project. And uh, I believe that what we have here in Nehemiah 5 is really a case study. Hence our theme, handling difficulties well. We can learn from the example of Nehemiah here in in Nehemiah 5 and Israel and the difficulties they faced and how uh, Nehemiah handled them. Lessons that are relevant for us in our day and in our time as we face uh, difficulties 
and as we uh, seek to handle them appropriately. Because we must understand that as Christians and as churches, the question is not whether or not we will face difficulties. God's people will face difficulties time and again. So the question isn't whether or not we will face them. Rather, the question is how we will handle them when we do. Will we handle them well? Or will we not handle them well? Will we handle them in a way which enables uh, the great project of the building of the Church of Jesus Christ in which we are involved to, to uh, continue and to, and to flourish? Or will we uh, handle them in a way which will cause uh, difficulty and cause the work of God among us uh, to uh, falter? So we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 5 and thinking together about handling difficulties well. Three things. Number one, what he didn't do. I believe that's a good place to start. By thinking perhaps about some of the things Nehemiah easily could have done in this situation, but that he didn't do. Things he could easily have done, but which would have been unwise, which would have been foolish, and which would not have been to handle this difficulty well. Let me give you three examples. First of all, he didn't ignore the difficulties. He could have just ignored the difficulties, but he didn't. The first verse sets the scene for what follows. We're told there was a great outcry by some among others. We could say that they were uh, experiencing their own 5th century BC, a cost of living crisis. And it was uh, bearing in uh, uh, upon them. And so Nehemiah hears about it. It comes to his attention. If you have a Bible open in front of you, if you just scan over the next few verses, verses 2, 3, 4, 5, you can see some of the ingredients uh, that, uh, uh, that built this, this problem. They were struggling to buy a food. Verse 2, we are sons and our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. They were having to mortgage their homes. Verse 3, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. They were struggling to pay their taxes. Verse 4, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. They were even, some of them, having to sell their children into slavery. Verse 5, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. So here they are, God's people, struggling to buy food, mortgaging their homes, struggling to pay their taxes, selling their children into slavery. And this had the potential to uh, derail 
this great rebuilding project. It was causing a problem uh, between different members of of God's uh, people. And it potentially could cause a problem between uh, some of them uh, and Nehemiah, who was leading uh, this uh, great work. I say it had the potential, if not handled well, to derail the whole project. And Nehemiah could have simply ignored the difficulties. He could have felt too busy, fearing distraction. He could have thought, we've got this great rebuilding project. Don't you understand that there's so much to be done uh, and we can't be distracted by these other issues. Just focus on the job in hand. He could have felt too busy, uh, fearing distraction. Or he could have felt the whole thing too difficult, fearing exposure, that this was a problem that was beyond him, that this was a problem that was too much for him, that this was a problem that he might not be able to fix. And so rather than seek to deal with it, he could have just tried to to push it to one side. He could have felt too busy, fearing distraction. He could have felt it too difficult, fearing exposure. But he didn't. He listened. He took time to understand. He felt the seriousness of the situation. And he determined that he must act. That he must do something about it. He didn't ignore the difficulties. The second thing he didn't do. He didn't feel angry but take no action. He didn't feel angry, but take no action. He did feel angry. Verse 6 tells us that in no uncertain terms. Nehemiah tells us himself, and I became very angry when I heard their outcry and uh, these words. He's not angry at those who are being oppressed. No, he's angry at those who are doing the oppressing. He's angered by the fact that those among God's people are oppressing their fellow uh, Israelites. He's angry that this is happening and that God's people could do such a thing to others among God's people. He did feel angry and it was right that he did. But the point we're making is that he didn't just feel angry. He didn't feel angry and think it shouldn't be this way but then think well never mind and let's carry on. No. He felt angry but he didn't just feel angry. He took action. He rebuked the oppressors verses 7 and following. He, I rebuked the nobles and rulers verse 7. He told them that what they were doing wasn't good, verse 9. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? He took action to resolve the problem. He says in verse 11, restore. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses and so on. And the result is that they say, verse 12, we will restore. 
So they said, we will restore it and we'll require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And uh, Nehemiah is so serious about it that he even calls the priests at the end of verse 12 and requires an oath uh, from the people that they would do according to their promise. So Nehemiah, he feels the anger of the situation. It's not just the people being oppressed who feel angry about it, but but he uh, feels uh, their pain. He is, is angry too, but He could have just felt angry and yet taken no action, done nothing about it. But he didn't. He took action to resolve the problem. So he didn't ignore the difficulties. He didn't feel angry but take no action. And a third thing he could have done that he didn't was that he didn't just rebuke others without setting a positive example himself. Nehemiah's example, as the first half of this chapter gives way to the second, is key. He doesn't just rebuke those who are doing things the wrong way, but by personal example, he demonstrates a better way. We'll think more about this in a moment. But he's appointed governor in the land of Judah. We're told that in verse 14. But he refuses to lay a burden upon the people, verse 14 and verse 15. Uh, There were various things that he could rightly have uh, demanded, the governor's provisions and so on, but he didn't want to lay a burden on the people. He felt the burden upon them was already heavy enough. And he didn't just not do what he could have done, namely lay a burden on the people, but he also did what he didn't have to do, inviting many to sit and to eat at his table. Verses 17 and 18, at my table were 150 Jews and rulers beside those who came to us from the nations around us. And we read verse 18 about the food that was prepared daily and so on. So we see these two things, these two sides of the coin, if we might put it that way. That he doesn't demand of the people all that he could rightly have demanded. And that he is generous towards the people, giving uh, that which uh, they, he did not have to give. So he didn't just rebuke others, but he set a positive example himself. And these are important points, aren't they? Uh, if we're to handle difficulties well, in the life of God's people. That there are things Nehemiah didn't do. And there are things we shouldn't do. However tempted at times we may be to do them. We shouldn't ignore the difficulties. And just try to press on regardless. And say well you know we're involved in this great gospel project. And seeking to win people for Christ. And to build the church. And we can't be, we can't be taken up with people's concerns about this and that. No. We can't just ignore the difficulties. Nor should we feel angry as if to say, well, we feel your pain and we understand, but but take no action and do nothing about it. And nor should we be those who rebuke others, but who fail to set a positive and a biblical and a godly example ourselves. So that's the first thing tonight. As we look at Nehemiah, this case study in handling difficulties well, what he didn't do. 
Well, many of you have heard me preach long enough that you could tell me what the second point is. Number two, what he did do. You got there before me, didn't you? What he did do. And no doubt there are many things that he did do. But again, I want to, with the Lord's help, highlight three of them uh, from the chapter uh, for you. Uh, First of all, the anger he felt. We've touched on this already, but we need to come back to it and think about it in a bit more detail. Verse 6, I became very angry when I heard their outcry and uh, these words. Now, we often hear the word anger and we immediately think sin. And that is because so much of our anger is a sinful. And we need to understand that there is a sinful anger. That all too quickly and all too easily as God's people we are angered by the wrong things. Or we are angered even about the right things for the wrong reasons. And selfishness is at the root of such sinful anger. We're angry normally because things are not the way we want them to be. We are not getting our own way. And so we're unhappy with God or we're unhappy with other people or we're unhappy with circumstances. And often it's a sinful anger. But though there is a sinful anger and perhaps much, even most of our anger, sadly to our shame, we have to confess is is sinful. The scriptures are also clear that there is a a holy anger, a righteous anger, a a godly anger. That it is possible to be angered by the right things and for the right reasons. And that the root of such a holy anger is not selfishness, quite the contrary. The root is godliness. The root is a desire for God and for his glory and for things to be done as God would have them uh, to be uh, done. There is a holy anger. And that is the kind of anger that we see Nehemiah exhibiting here in this fifth chapter. It was quite wrong that some of God's people were oppressing others of God's people just because they could. Those who were oppressed felt this anger. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that those who were oppressed felt the anger. It was necessary for Nehemiah as the leader of God's people to feel that anger too. So there's the anger he felt. He says, I became very angry when I heard that outcry and uh, these words. The anger he felt. But secondly, in terms of what he did do, the words he spoke. Verses 7 and following. As we've said, he didn't just feel angry, he, he acted. And we're focusing now upon the words he spoke. And let's not go to them so quickly that we miss the opening of verse 7. He's angry, verse 6, very angry. He rebukes the nobles and the rulers, verse 7, but he does so, beginning of the 7th verse, after serious thought. Oh, what wisdom there is in those words, friends. After serious thought. Nehemiah 
didn't speak first and then think later. No, he thought first and then he spoke. He took time to think seriously before he opened his mouth. And if you're like me, you find those words convicting and challenging in equal measure. Because I look back over my life as a, as a Christian and as a pastor uh, and memories that haunt me of things that I said that I should never have said so often the problem was that I didn't think and then speak. Rather I spoke and then thought later. And in pastoral life and in Christian ministry so many of the people and the problems that you deal with are scenarios that would never have existed if only people had thought before they spoke. But they spoke before they thought. After serious thought, Nehemiah spoke. And he speaks to these oppressors in uh, verse uh, 7. And he rebukes them for exacting usury. Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. Usury, we understand to be crippling interest, which resulted in spiraling debt. I'm not persuaded that we can make a case from God's word for saying that it's wrong for people to lend money and charge interest, or that it's wrong for people to borrow money and to pay interest. Usury shouldn't just be uh, equated with, with interest per se. But usury is a, is a crippling interest. It's taking advantage of someone in need. It's charging them an unfair and an unrealistic amount of interest with the result that there isn't really any hope of them getting out of this uh, trap of ever-increasing, aspiring debt. And it's interesting, we're told Nehemiah didn't just speak to these people individually or as a group, but he spoke to them in front of others. End of verse 7, so I called a great assembly against them. And in front of this great assembly, he challenged them to think about what they were doing, verse 8, and that it wasn't good, verse 9. To think about what they were doing, verse 8, I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? In other words, there were those who had been sold to the surrounding nations, and they had sought to redeem them and to set them free. And now God's people were taking others of God's people as slaves. God's people were making slaves of their own People, think about what you're doing, Nehemiah says. And it is not good. This is very much the central verse of the chapter, I think, which is why it's the one I've had highlighted on the screen this evening. Verse 9. What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? 
takes great character and courage for a leader of God's people to face any of God's people and to speak in this manner, to say what you are doing is not good should you not walk in the fear of God. But Nehemiah under God was a man of such character. Nehemiah under God was a man of such courage. He could not sit back and say nothing while some of God's people oppressed others of God's people. So we're thinking about what he did do, the anger he felt, the words he spoke, and also, number three, the example he set. Verse 10 touches on it. I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. In other words, I'm helping people without um, charging them the extortionate rates of interest that you are. He's lending money without usury. He's saying it doesn't have to be this way. And then he uses this illustration in verse 13, which might seem strange to our 21st century British ears, but where he he shakes out the fold of his garment. We understand this to be just kind of getting rid of dust and that which was worthless and of no value. But he's doing this in order to identify with his people. He says, then I shook out the fold of my garment, verse 13, and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. In other words, if the people are not serious about their repentance and putting right uh, the wrongs that they have committed, uh, then uh, Nehemiah is saying that the Lord uh, should treat them as those who are just dust and filth and worthless and uh, of no value. And then, as we've touched on already, Nehemiah sets the example as governor, verses 14 and following both by what he doesn't do, laying a burden on the people, and by what he does do in his generosity uh, towards those who are in need. With the result that he can end this fifth chapter with a prayer, verse 19, Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now, some people have read that verse and scratched their heads and thought, well, what's Nehemiah on here? Is He uh, seems to be trying to commend himself to God by his works. I don't think that's right at all. Um, I think Nehemiah here simply is uh, rejoicing in God's goodness to him, uh, that he has been able to do the works that the Lord has prepared beforehand uh, for him to do. And I think it's important to remember that in all probability, when Nehemiah was writing this book, he wasn't necessarily writing it Uh, with the expectation that all these centuries later we'd still be reading it. It was really more of a a personal diary, more of a personal reflection. Now we know the Lord had other ideas by his Holy Spirit. He was seeing to it uh, that Nehemiah was writing the very word of God and that it would be included in the canon of scripture and it would be passed down to us so that we could read it and preach it and learn from it all these uh, centuries later. But I don't think Nehemiah is teaching anything unorthodox here, nor is he advertising himself. He's simply recording 
that in God's goodness, by God's grace and to his glory, he had been able to do a great deal for this people, including handling these difficulties well and seeing that this great project of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem was not derailed by this serious problem that had arisen among God's people. So, I promised you three points. We've had number one, what he didn't do. And we've had number two, what he did do. But I don't believe a consideration of Nehemiah 5 would be complete without our third point, to whom he points. To whom he points. Because I find it almost impossible to read of Nehemiah in this fifth chapter and not to see something of the Lord Jesus Christ in Nehemiah. The way Nehemiah handles this difficulty, the heart that he has for God's people, the concern he demonstrates, the compassion he shows. Yes, he is only a man, he is only a type. He is not perfect any more than any of the rest of us are. But surely, like so many of the characters that walk across the pages of Holy Scripture, he points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've said of Nehemiah, he doesn't ignore the problem. Rather, he feels angry. He feels the people's pain. He speaks. Words must be spoken, and Nehemiah is not afraid to speak those words. He deals graciously, though others were dealing harshly with God's people. He deals graciously with them. And he sets them an example of a better way. And if all those things were true of Nehemiah, and they are, are they not more true, infinitely true, of our dear Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ? Others may ignore us in our time of crisis, but he never does Others may not feel what we're going through in a real and in a personal way, but he always will. He is the one who speaks into every situation by his word and by his spirit. He is the one who always deals graciously with us. Even if at times he has to deal roughly with us, it is always gracious. And he is the one who more than any other sets us an example of what it is to live to the glory of God, of what it is to live for the blessing of others, of what it is to live the Christian life, not in a way that is in it for what we can get out of it, but that is in it that God might be glorified and that others might be blessed. Nehemiah points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the particular significance of this? Well, I believe it's this. You see, others will fail you. They will. But he'll never fail you. Never. Ever. Others will fail you. Even Nehemiah wasn't perfect and he didn't always get everything right. And the best of under shepherds, the best of uh, the leaders and the pastors of, uh, of Christ's flock are, are flawed and failing. That's not an excuse. 
It's not to say, well, you know, we're all flawed and we're all failing, so, so don't get your hopes up. It's not an excuse. It's simply a fact. It's simply a fact that the best of under-shepherds are flawed and failing. And uh, from time to time, at least, they will fail you. But the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd never has and never will. He never has failed any one of his sheep. He never will fail any one of his sheep. He is worthy of your absolute trust. He's worthy of our absolute trust when first we come to faith, repenting and turning from our sin, turning and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never yet done that, if you're here tonight, my friend, and you're not yet a Christian, not yet one of Christ's sheep, he is worthy of your absolute trust. Everyone else in your life, somewhere along the line, will fail you and let you down, but he will never fail you and he will never let you down. But what is true at the beginning of the Christian life is true all the way through. We can trust him absolutely. Others will fail you. You will fail others. But he will never fail those who trust in him. He knows best. He always knows best. And he does what's best he always does what's best even when it doesn't look like it or even when it doesn't seem that way you can trust the Lord Jesus Christ because he knows best and he does what's best and he is worthy of your absolute trust we should thank God for a man like Nehemiah who was given great wisdom and grace to handle difficulties well. And we should seek to be such people, exhibiting like character and a similar courage. But ultimately, our trust is not in ourselves or in one another. Our trust, individually and together, must be in the Lord Jesus Christ who will never fail us not today not tomorrow not ever Amen We'll close by singing a hymn together it's 752 if you're using a book 752 Lord Jesus think on me and purge away my sin from earthborn passions, set me free and make me pure within. The closing hymn.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>